Listeners, a long time ago, well, actually, a few months ago, I had my friend Horse Girl Cat on the show to discuss me teaching murderous horses. And that episode was over two hours long where we covered a lot of ground and talked about a lot of different things. Among those things, we touched upon a Japanese legend concerning a samurai trying to tame a murderous horse. Now, I tried searching on the internet for more information on that legend, and I could not find much. It looks like most of the English uh, literature on that specific legend is from the book that we used as the source for that episode. The book I'm talking about is named Deadly Equines, The Shocking True Story of Meat Eating and Murderous Horses by Kuklan O'Reilly. And as his book seems to be a main source for the legend of this Japanese murderous horse, and as I want to dedicate a mini-episode to the legend, I am going to read verbatim what Kukulin wrote about the legend in his book. So I hope this is not plagiarism, it is an homage, or rather just reading off of somebody else's work. I am not going to claim that I changed anything here, I am just reading verbatim, and the book, again, by Kukulin O'Reilly, is Deadly Equines, The Shocking True Story of Meat Eating and Murderous Horses. So, the chapter titled The Dappled Demon of Japan comes after the chapter which is dedicated to Bucephalus because Kuchelen uh, did some research and found out that Bucephalus, you know, the most famous uh, horse in all of history belonging to Alexander the Great, was actually related to the mares of Diomedes, which were meat-eating, human-killing horses, and Bucephalus himself was a man-eater. And Bucephalus himself was kept in a cage by by King Philip of Macedonia and Alexander the Great needed to tame the horse which was known to kill anybody who <laughs> approached it. I think Prince Philip was even throwing his enemies into the cage with the horse. So, this chapter starts with from Pelta, Macedonia, the Long Riders Guild research led to Sagami, Japan, where another remarkable national myth was discovered lurking in the shadows. Like its predecessor, this tale also concerned a young prince mounted on a man-eating horse. The legend of the wandering samurai Oguri Hangan is an old sega from Japan's pantheon of literary classics. It describes the travels and adventures of young Oguri, who lived from 1398 to 1444. During that time, he made history by surviving and riding the dappled demon of Japan. Unlike Alexander the Great, Oguri's encounter with a homicidal horse came about because of love. Having learned from a roving peddler of a beautiful princess named Terute, Oguri determined to win her heart. He began this romantic saga by having the peddler deliver his love letters to Terute. Once the Japanese Juliet assured her lover that his passion was reciprocated, the headstrong Aguri rushed into her father's castle and demanded Terute's hand in marriage. Though Lord Yokoyama pretended to accept his daughter's suitor, the outraged father decided to have Aguri slain thanks to a cunning trick. He wouldn't lay a hand on the upstart bridegroom himself. Quite the contrary, Yokoyama planned instead to let the man-eating dappled demon kill and consume the hated opponent. 
Thus, in accordance with custom, Yokoyama hosted a tremendous banquet in honor of his daughter's marriage to Oguri. At the conclusion of that sumptuous meal, the treacherous Yokoyama called upon his son-in-law to entertain the aristocrats and samurai assembled there. The unsuspecting bridegroom announced, My talents include archery or the knife, feats of strength or speed. Quick, tell me what you would enjoy. No, replied Yokoyama. I have another challenge in mind. The wily father-in-law then baited his hook by describing a horse he had recently purchased. Having downplayed the animal as being just a backcountry brute in need of a talented rider, Yokoyama dared Oguri to accept the ordeal. Little did Yokoyama know that among his many talents, Oguri was the most extraordinary horseman in the history of the island kingdom. Even though he's wild, I'm sure you're man enough to ride him, Yokoyama said, all the while hiding his true menace. When the hero agreed, Yokoyama led his son-in-law and guests outside the castle and into the nearby countryside. There awaiting Oguri was the man-eating terror known as the Dappled Demon. With the wedding guests following close behind, Yokoyama brought Oguri to the edge of the most fearsome enclosure ever described in equestrian history. The first line of defense was a large moat. On the other side of this watery barrier was a corral designed to hold a fiend. Eight pillars, standing to the right and left, had been firmly jammed into the ground. They were made of camphor tree trunks, so huge it had required 85 men to transport each one of them from the mountains. Between these eight giants, Oguri saw smaller pillars had been firmly driven into the ground. These pillars were made from strong chestnut trees, and each of them was the span of three men's arms. As a final precaution, iron grating had been put into place between all the pillars so as to complete the confinement. While the mighty prison was a dire omen, what lay inside its walls left no doubt as to the murderous occupation of its sole inhabitant. Oguri instantly saw that the ground was littered with human skeletons. The crushed bones of these previous victims were in ample evidence. Scraps of their hair rustled among the human debris. Inside the mighty fortress of death, surrounded by trophies of his previous kills, stood a single animal. Confronting Oguri was the terrifying, man-eating horse called Onikage, the dappled demon. Each of the demon's gray fetlocks was fastened with a massive chain which attached him in four directions to the enormous camphor pillars. One look at the remains of the demon's manly meals was all it took for Oguri to realize that it was his human intelligence and not his strength which was needed. Even though he realized the extent of his future father-in-law's treachery, Oguri crossed the moat, entered the fortress, and walked straight up to the glowering stallion. To the astonishment of the onlookers, the Japanese horsemen then began to subdue the killer, not by brutality, but by reason. 
Greetings, Onikage, Oguri said quietly. If you are a sentient being, prick up your ears and listen to me carefully. Other horses are kept tethered in ordinary stables. You are locked away in a grim prison. Other horses eat the green fodder brought to them by caring grooms. You, instead, devour those who attempt to help you. Other horses obey their masters. You kill anyone who tries to ride you. In exchange for their valuable services, other horses are treated with kindness. Because they allow men to ride them, these horses are often tethered outside the temple gate. While their master attends the ceremony inside, these horses can hear the prayers and those sutra readings remind the horses to consider their own future incarnations. Though the crowd standing beyond the moat could not hear Oguri, it was clear even from a distance that the young horseman's words were having an astonishing effect on the murderous horse. For reasons I don't understand, you enjoy eating humans, Onikage. Those acts have turned you into a devil. The lives of people are sacred, as is yours. When you kill and eat a person, what do you suppose that does to you, dapple demon? Instead of slaying the impudent man, the man-killer stood listening intently. I don't care about your past sins, Onikage. In fact, I have come to seek your assistance. If you will allow me to ride you, in order to honor your spirit... Upon your death, I vow to build a golden temple and place a statue in your likeness inside. All I ask in return is for your obedience and loyalty, Oguri said. It was at that moment that Lord Yokoyama's plan went badly awry, because in front of the assembled samurai lords, Onikage the Manslayer folded his front legs in reverence to Oguri. To their astonishment, the banquet guests saw golden tears of gratitude flowing from the eyes of the great horse. As if in confirmation of his repentance, the dappled demon then rose and stood completely still while Oguri undid the mighty chains securing the stallion's legs. Feeling himself free, Onikage shook his body violently and screaming with pleasure. His trumpeting frightened Yokoyama and his guests. But while they hesitated, trying to decide if they should stay or flee, Oguri grabbed a handful of the dappled demon's mane and leapt upon his bare back. Before they could be stopped, Oguri rode the dappled demon through the gates of his prison, jumped the moat, scattered the startled guests and charged straight towards Lord Yokoyama's castle. With the samurai running behind him, Oguri then proceeded to use his secret knowledge of horses to accomplish a series of tasks which has never been repeated nor reported outside of Japan. According to the chronicles, Oguri Guri rode Onikage up a ladder, across the castle roof, and down a pine tree. Upon emerging in front of the banquet hall, where stood the assembled guests, Oguri urged the horse to jump up on a small go or a chessboard where the dappled demon balanced upon his hind legs. At the conclusion of these amazing feats, the clamor of admiration from the guests was so great that Lord Yokoyama left compelled to present Oguri with ten horses laden with gold and treasure. Though he encountered many other terrible adventures, Oguri and Terute were eventually able to live together in his castle. Thanks to his courage, 
marriage, by the 15th century, the valiant samurai was worshipped in Japan as the country's god of war. He never forgot his promise to the reformed dappled demon. Using Lord Yokoyama's gold, Oguri built the promised temple and erected a statue of the fearsome horse, who remains venerated as an equine deity in Japan. So, a grisly alternative tale about Bucephalus? A man-eating horse still worshipped in Japan? Are there hitherto unexplored equestrian legends linking the Orient and Europe? When you consider the similarities between Bucephalus and Onikage, one wonders why these versions of events have remained largely invisible for so many centuries. Could it be linked to an undiagnosed global case of willful equestrian blindness? And that there, guys, is what the whole book is about. Kukulin O'Reilly has compiled a, a lot of tales from uh, mythology, folklore, and from history even, of horses being either man-eaters, or just killers of men, or just eating meat, or being fed meat. And what he refers to an equestrian blindness, or later in the book as an equestrian amnesia, is this phenomenon that he calls the O'Reilly factor, per, you know, his own name, of a uh, humans forgetting the true nature of horses and willfully denying that they are also murderous man-eating killers that how we treat horses today is a product of centuries of propaganda and mythology and that we are denying horses true natures and that maybe these people in history actually were more in tune with what horses actually were. Not monsters, but very fearsome animals that should not be fucked around with. Now, having said that, there are a few very, at least to me, problematic motifs, not just in this story, but in all stories regarding mythological horses. So throughout, you know, the centuries, we have reduced horses to essentially vehicles and tools of expanding human domination, which we could never have established without horses. You know, all of these heroes in mythology are only as good as the horses they are riding. They're just sitting on their ass and relying on another creature to transport them wherever they want to go and dominate something. Yeah, I know, I know. Horse riders look at this from a completely different perspective as some kind of a symbiosis between two entities where the entities merge into one by, by body and by soul. But the thing is, we have taken horses from their natural habitats and through uh, at least 6,000 years we have we have conditioned them to just live their lives thinking that they are tools for human expansion and we reward them with what fucking grass and maybe a gold statue as <laughs> oguri erected for this horse the story is beautiful to many people. To me, it has some very problematic connotations, especially with Oguri asserting his human domination over this horse and saying, you need to allow me to ride you so you may be treated with respect. And this horse is already very traumatized and gaslighted. It's being held in a giant fortress, being fed people, which is not its normal natural food. And there is this motif, even with the mirrors of Diomedes, that uh, these horses are actually animal abuse 
abuse victims, that the horse's owners are feeding them humans, and that because of this consumption of human meat, the horses are driven, driven mad. This motif originates even from Greek mythology with the mares of Diomedes. So that's why I, I'm not titling this episode Oguri Sangan, the samurai of Japan, war hero, whatnot, because the true hero of this story is actually Onikage, the dappled demon of Japan, for even putting up with our bullshit and shedding a golden tear and accepting its fate of just being used as a tool to impress a warlord so that warlord may provide his own daughter to a hero. Man, I am ruining all of this for you, and am I not? <laughs> but I can't help and think about these motifs because even in classic mythology, it is always centered around the heroes and, you know, history is written by winners. And it's not written by monsters and animals, so we never get their perspective of the whole thing. And we define whether other creatures are monsters or not based on how they interact with us, and whether they are willing to be subservient to us. So, to end this episode, I just want to say that not all monsters are monsters, and sometimes in these classical mythological literatures, the monsters are actually just ordinary animals upon which we reflect our own subconsciousness and our own fears and anxieties, our own fears of losing control over Mother Nature itself. And also, I want to end on a note where I urge my listeners to seek out the enchantment of the natural world, because even animals that become very common name to us can still be perceived as miraculous sources of inspiration and creativity and spark new mythologies. 